Welcome to Prescribing Prosperity with your hosts, John and Alex Sutsos from MidWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation. In this podcast, we provide unique insights into wealth management, the psychology of financial decisions, and help listeners place the capital markets into perspective. Our aim is to help physicians, business owners, and other medical professionals to live their dream. Life is to live and enjoy, so we'll also cover health and lifestyle-related topics such as food, dining, travel, and unique experiences. Learn how global trends shape our investment strategy as we help you assemble your roadmap to prosperity. And welcome to the Prescribing Prosperity Podcast with your host, John and Alex Sutsos. Guys, good to be with you this week. I understand we're talking real estate. Yeah, it's exciting. Real estate is something that uh, everyone has an interest in, and uh, we uh, we think we're going to have a, a great discussion, very insightful. We have one of the top experts in in the world with us today. Yeah, in order to help with this conversation and facilitate it and actually bring some intelligence to it, Corrado Russo is here to join us. Uh, Corrado, how are you? Welcome. Good to see you. I'm doing very well. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's glad, I'm glad you could make it. For those listening, Corrado is the managing partner and head of global securities at Hazelview Investments. He's responsible for managing the global public real estate platform, including Hazelview's global real estate fund and Four Quadrant Real Estate Partnership. Corrado is a CFA charter holder and an MBA graduate from the Schulich School of Business at York University. And with that, John and Alex, I turn it over to you. Corrado, the last time you and I saw each other, we were on a boat on a river in Chicago, enjoying the architecture. I don't know if you remember that. I do. That's that's going way back. We're, uh, we're showing our age on that one. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's pre-COVID, and uh, a lot has happened since that time. How have you been keeping in terms of uh, your, your the business, and uh, how have you been keeping overall? Been doing well. You know, the the business has been doing well. Uh, we continue to grow. As you know, we had uh, some restructuring just before COVID has sort of set us up for the next ten to twenty years. After you know being in business. For 20 years, and I think uh, I think a lot of the moves we made has, has really uh, helped us take advantage of some of the growth prospects that we see out there. You know, we've we've seen some great healthy growth in the organization overall, and some new products that uh, we're we're really excited about. That's good, Alex. Yeah. So, uh, Carlo, uh, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about how you got started in your career and uh, how you got to this point at Hazelview, and what particularly drew you to real estate investing. Uh, sure. So I I started my career at Ontario Teachers uh, Pension Plan Board, actually in the real estate group. I was a summer student there after my first year of my uh, my MBA. Had no interest in in real estate. It was uh, it was a job that was being offered, and uh, I applied for it and got the summer position. And in three months, absolutely fell in love. Uh, loved the idea of the. Uh, underwriting the cash flow and the uh, the hybrid between equities and fixed income characteristics that real estate gives you and the the predictability and the you know the ability to to, to forecast and understand how you can add value uh, to buildings and that it's not just about passively buying something and collecting the cash flow but it's about how can you change the vision add to it 
improve it so that you can, you know, increase its overall value over the long term. So that really got me excited. After finishing my MBA, I took a full-time position at Teachers. I was in the acquisitions group there uh, on the private real estate side. So buying direct assets. And about three or four years into that, we decided to add a publicly traded portion of our portfolio to that lineup as well. And so I started managing that um, at the ripe, ripe old age of about 25, um, managing the, uh, the securities, REIT security portfolio for Ontario teachers. Uh, it was a small Canadian business and we had we added a US REIT uh, portfolio as well that we outsourced to uh, Alliance Bernstein at the time. One of the last transactions I did at uh, teachers was the take private of Cadillac Fairview. So that was a publicly traded company nice. and Ontario Teachers acquired that. It was one of the largest, well, to this date, 30 years later, the largest transaction I ever did in my career. Uh, I remember one of my uh, colleagues telling me that, you know, the good news is that you closed an amazing transaction at the age of 26. The bad news is your career just peaked. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he was right. <laughs> it was a really, you know, I've done some amazing, fun and lucrative deals since then, but none that big. Um, but anyway, the the um, the offshoot of that was that we took real estate as a percentage of the fund from well overweight to well o- overweight. Uh, and so we were going to be in sell down mode for the next five years. And so being the, the deal junkie that I was, I wanted to move on and do something different. Uh, and so I really got to like the security side of the business. So from there, I moved to uh, Nesbitt Burns, which today is BMO Capital Markets. Uh, and was the sell-side REIT analyst covering Canadian REITs, as well as starting to cover the North American REITs. Quickly figured out that I like buying things, not telling other people what they should buy. Uh, and so I went to Investors Group uh, as a buy-side analyst. Again, covering real estate, gaming, lodging, sort of all things real estate or real estate hybrid related, home building Uh, And sort of grew that expertise into sort of more of a general equity background. Uh, Got my first portfolio about four, three, 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 four years from then. Started managing a large cap growth, sorry, a large cap value equity fund, general equity fund. I did that for a number of years and then got a call from uh, Citigroup to move to New York, take the family and start a global REIT business. Uh, for Citigroup property investors, uh, which had a very large uh, private real estate business, but not a public one. And so I I moved to New York, built that out, had a lot, a lot of fun. Uh, At the same time, I was on the board of Timber Creek, which was founded by Ugo Bazzari, who uh, was my colleague at Ontario Teachers. We started around the same time at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board. So I followed Timber Creek, watched them grow on the board while I was at Citigroup. And then when the financial crisis happened, it was time to come over to Timber Creek. And um, in the meantime, Ugo had built out a great multifamily business. Uh, and uh, it was time to add a publicly traded securities business to that real estate, private real estate business. So came over and started that in 2011. Timber Creek obviously has been now restructured to Hazelview Investments. And so, uh, you know, we've now been building out the securities business for about 11 years. Uh, and Ugo has, uh, has built out Hazelview, obviously, over the last 20 plus. 
Um, so that's, you know, a long uh, winded answer to, uh, to my background, but I guess you get to a certain age where it just gets longer to answer. So uh, I, 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 I prefer, I prefer the, the adjective comprehensive. Thank you. As yes. do I. Before yes. you uh, jump in, Dad, I just wanted to uh, ask Corrado, so just jumping back a, a little bit, uh, in terms of the, the Cadillac Fairview transaction, what was it about that one that was so engaging that everything else has failed to uh, kind of live up to that that high, if you will, from when you were 26 years old? Yeah, I mean, first was the size. It was 101 assets in one company. Uh, it was about $15 billion worth of assets, $6 billion in equity, and that's in 2000 when, you know, $15 billion was a lot of money. And uh, it was trading at a 25 to 30% below what we thought the value of the private assets were. Uh, and so our view was that, you know, there was a bit, there was a bit of an arbitrage here. Uh, we had a lot of excess capital to put to work at Ontario Teachers and there were all private opportunities and there were good private opportunities out there. But our view was, why would we pay a fair price for private assets when we can buy great assets in Cadillac Fairview at 70 cents on the dollar? So it took 11 months to complete that transaction. You know, it was an extremely lucrative transaction, both from obviously financial perspective for, for the teacher's pension plan, you know, which would serve them well over the years. They continue to own that investment, Cadillac Fairview, has been the real estate arm of Ontario teachers since 2000. Uh, so it's continued to be the gift that that, that keeps on giving. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a, a lot of fun uh, in, in your late 20s to, to do that kind of a transaction. For sure. My mom and my wife uh, both thank you for that because they're both uh, teachers. My mom's a retired teacher. So uh both benefiting from that transaction for sure. My wife was as well, so she was uh, on top of me to make sure that uh, we didn't <laughs> pay and uh, we took care of it. So, okay. and so, sorry, so, Dad. sorry. Just uh, while you're answering that question, uh, what was the catalyst that caused Cadillac Ferry to be selling at such a discount? That was going to be my question. So uh, we had owned a portion of the company as a publicly traded company. We we're one of the largest owners of it. Um, the company had been trading at a discount for quite some time. It did have a bit leverage. Again, you're going into the late 90s. If you recall the time at the late 90s, um, John, no offense, you may, Alex, you may not. Uh, hey, hey, I remember Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys. It's, it's all there. <laughs> you know, real estate was uh, real estate was a four letter word back then. Or it was all about the tech bubble and, uh, you yeah. know, technology was going to replace the office, nobody's going to the office anymore. Nobody, everybody's going to order online and not going to a retail center anymore. Uh, you know, what does that sound like? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, obviously, it didn't play out. So the stock had been trading at a discount for quite some time, and the publicly traded owners were getting frustrated that it wasn't servicing value. And uh, this was a way of the public company to service value. At the same time, there was no, there was no controlling shareholder for the most part there other than than us that were looking to acquire it so uh, i i think it was just a, an opportunistic time to be buying publics and this happens from time to time right it you know we see it almost every decade it happened in the in the late 90s it happened in the financial crisis and it's happening today uh so i think it's an opportune time to be talking about that kind of transaction because that this i'm seeing what's happened in the public space today which i'm happy to get into now or later 
Um, well, what since, since you since you brought that up, Corrado, uh, that was actually going to be my next question: is how has real estate changed over the last few years, beginning with the pandemic, and what trends are you seeing today? Yeah, so so obviously there's there's the the underlying asset trend changes that we're seeing and then what's happening in the public world and the only difference between really valuation and so we'll we'll touch on that in a minute but you know i i think you're actually seeing a significant amount of changes across every type of real estate asset class uh and the pandemic really had some lasting impact on a lot of different um commercial real estate predominantly uh, asset classes, right? So to answer your question specifically, you look at something like office, for example, you know, the work from home has changed that landscape forever, you know, in terms of both what the demand is for office going forward, but office also what the office will look like uh, over the next five, 10 and 20 years and how it will be utilized and by who it will be utilized. So that, you know, we're seeing a lot of changes there. Retail, the same thing. You know, grocery anchored used to be the ugly stepchild to the uh, luxury shopping center, you know, fashion-oriented shopping center. And that inverse, non-discretionary goods like groceries, like services, barbershop nails uh, that are harder to do online. You still haven't figured out how to cut your hair online yet. Are in much more Uh Sorry? You got to get the Flovey, the vacuum with the little clippers inside of it so you can... Uh... Suck up your hair and cut at the same time. There you go. There you go. They'll they'll send drones out at some point to do it. For <laughs> um, and uh, you know, logistics has changed dramatically. Um, you know, hotels continue to change. Multifamily has continued to change. You know, you've seen everything from uh, you know our our mobility and patterns, urbanization changes, ESG changes that are really impacting each of those different each of those different sectors. Um, which, you know, I'm happy to... Uh, to, to ESG, ESG is a hot topic in the investment bi- in business, but uh, it's, uh, it's actually also very controversial. And uh, while there's been a lot of pressure in that area for compliance, yeah. uh, there's now begun some pushback on, it, on its relevance and, uh, and really should, should uh, companies be paying that much attention to it? Should they be more focused on ensuring the efficient use of capital? Yeah, it's 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 a great question, John. It's kind of the dilemma that's out there, right? It's ESG uh, has become sort of a debate around um, do you focus on maximizing returns or do you focus on maximizing the healthiness and su- sustainability of the overall environment in our society? And that's been the ongoing debate. And obviously, the 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 challenge uh, for corporations like ours is to find a balance between two, right? Yeah, I will say to you that ESG at this point is becoming table stakes, frankly, because our clients are asking for it. Um, there is uh, ongoing demand for more information and for more of a focus in terms of how our properties are being sustainable, how we're dealing with emissions, environmental concerns. Uh, how we're dealing with, uh, you know, making sure that we have very efficient uh, use of of electricity and power, um, you know, giving back to society. I guess what I'd say, John, from our perspective on ESG is, um, while this is a uh, very, very hot topic and has been ever increasing over the last several years, it's something we've been doing forever. And we haven't been doing it just necessarily because we want to be you know, nice people. And we, we certainly do, but 
if you think about it in the context of real estate, you've kind of had to do it, right? From an environmental sure. perspective, being more efficient on power, being more efficient on water usage, being more efficient on sewage. That's just common sense. That, that lowers your expenses. Yeah. And it goes to the bottom line. So it helps maximize your overall operating income. So it's just something we've been focusing on for a very long time. Society. If you don't give back to society, you don't treat your tenants properly, you don't treat the communities in which you rent your underlying assets, your reputation is going to go downhill and people are not sure. going to want to rent from you. So yeah. this is something that's you know, obviously always been in our mind. And then governance. You know, we, we have institutional capital. And with institutional capital comes a significant amount of oversight and due diligence. And so, you know, governance is sort of key because if you're not transparent and you're not doing what's right for clients, then you're not going to you're not going to grow your business. It is a hot topic. Uh, it's something we're very focused on. It is something we believe is the right thing to do. To your point, you have to balance that against returns. But I do think there are ways that you can achieve your ESG goals and have them contribute to, to the bottom line as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great answer. Alex. In terms of before we, uh, I, I wanted to move back to the, uh, the office space to discuss that a little bit before, but before we get to that, I just wanted to ask a quick follow-up question, Corrado. Uh, and that was, you know, how is the, how is the current real estate or the current interest rate environment, excuse me, impacting the the real estate market so obviously we've seen an unprecedented or unprecedented in the last 40 years uh rate of increases in the uh, interest rates both here in canada and in the united states uh, as well as abroad in uh, in some instances and so what we want to know and what uh, a lot of investors want to know is how is that impacting the the real estate market and how do you see that impact unfolding over the next uh three to five years yeah, so uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'll try to take them in lockstep. Let me know if I miss any. Start, start with the obvious and what's been happening. If you look at the front end of the curve, obviously you've seen a significant rise to your point, unprecedented four, five, 600 basis points, depending on what country we're talking about, increase in the front end of the curve. Now that's off of a basis of effectively zero. And so arguably interest rates were way too low at the front end of the curve and they're way too high at the high end of the curve. So if you've had variable debt on your properties, variable rate mortgages, uh, variable rate development projects, or very you own companies that have a lot of variable rate debt, you're feeling a pinch quite significantly. It's hitting your cost of debt and it's hitting your ability to raise capital to do no more projects and to enhance the projects you have. For the most part, sophisticated owners that own properties have put fixed income, fixed uh, debt uh, rate on their properties. And that's predominantly what we have. You, you know, that that has allowed you to fix rates over the last three years. If, if you didn't fix rate in 2020, 2021, 2022, you had your head in the sand instead of in, in terms of not understanding that there was going to be an increase in, in rates. Where it is impacting uh, most is on new development projects, because it's very difficult to get fixed rate debt on development projects. Uh, for income producing assets, you can get fixed rate debt, but most development projects out there likely have variable debt. And so we're seeing a lot of developments that where the developers are running out of money, um, they're having to shelf projects, they're having to reduce uh, the speed at which they're going, or they're having to just stop completely. And what you're also seeing as new starts 
are, are completely collapsing. And so, you know, that has pros and cons, right? Obviously, it's going to be difficult for existing project, but it means supply is going down longer term. So now you have to switch to, yes, there's an increase in cost, even if you have fixed rate debt as that rolls, you're gonna get a higher cost and that impacts obviously your cap rate, which is effectively how you value real estate, right? You take your operating income divided by your cap rate, that cap rate can increase with interest rates, which can reduce the value of your asset. But that's only half the equation. Right, that's only the denominator of how you value real estate. The numerator is cash flow. So as yeah. operating income or cash flow goes up, it offsets the rise in cap rates, which is a function of higher interest rates and higher risk premiums, which effectively impacts cost of capital. Inflation, by its nature, drives rental growth. So what you've seen over the last three years is while interest rates have gone up, in rents have gone up faster than the cost of interest rates. So to date, real estate fundamentals, when I say fundamentals, I mean the underlying cash flow stream has not significantly been impacted by it. That's very rates. interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Like that, it, that, that, that it's a change that rapidly. Exactly. Right. So when you see you have two, two, three, 400 base points, higher cost of debt, you're getting six, seven, 800 base points more growth. So it's been offsetting it to a certain degree. Now, the question is, as inflation comes down and that changes, if interest rates also don't come down, how does that impact you? And that's where it gets into, obviously, the expectation is if rates, if, if inflation comes down, rates should follow. So the point being, you see a lot in the media about, you know, holding one variable constant and what impact that has. But obviously, everything is not constant. And there are a lot of variables that can offset. So as long as you have real estate that has good demand supply fundamentals, you should uh, have the ability to offset costs with a growth in revenue streams. The last thing I'll say on the topic is when it comes to real estate, most of your financing outside of development is fixed and fixed is generally priced on the five year, not the three month or even the one year. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the five year where it is versus pre-COVID, it's about 150 to 200 basis points higher. It's not 400, 500, 600 basis points higher. And so, you know, 150 to 200 basis points higher in an environment where growth is three to 4% higher, that doesn't feel that bad to me. And yeah, what's yeah. different this time versus the financial crisis is capital is available. That's available. You may pay more for it, but it's available. Right. right. Just just to back up a second, you mentioned that the development uh, are, are freezing up or they're abandoning projects because they can't get financing. For, for those in the audience who are not familiar with the dif difference between development real estate and buying a, a cash flow property, can you explain the, the financing differences? Sure. So start with cash flow property. You have a building. It's leased out to tenants. It's predominantly full. And they have contractual rent. So they're paying you rent every single month that they're legally obligated to do. And the the length of that contract is typically five, seven, or 10 years long. So you have a very stable predictability of cash flow. And that predictability allows you to achieve a fixed rate of debt over the long term because banks are very comfortable lending 
to commercial real estate because they know you have the underlying cash flow stream to pay their interest expenses. So that allows you to get a lower cost of financing and a fixed cost of financing. When it comes to development, you're talking about building something from scratch, right? So you're right. going to build it up. You're going to put materials together and labor to get that going. Then you're going to attempt to lease it out. Uh, and once you lease it out, you will you will create that income stream, which is what's valuable. But there is a different risk profile while you're building that out, both in terms of what it's going to cost. Costs may change. You know, what you're able to lease it out may change and how quickly you lease it up is also variable. And you also can't oh. get financing on, on raw land. Exactly. So what ends up happening is your financing tends to be less proceeds, so less amount that you can get for that property, and it tends to be more variable, uh, and it tends to be more short-term. I don't know if you have any familiarity. There's a large condo project that was slated to to start just south of St. Lawrence Market in the Toronto area, and uh, it was postponed and postponed and postponed, obviously, due, due, during the COVID period. And my understanding now is that the original developer has sold that project to another company, I believe, called Pinnacle. Who will who will take it over? And I I think that speaks to the lack of deep pockets by the the original developer. It does, and it also speaks to if you do have deep pockets, you can take advantage of that today. There are opportunities to take advantage of projects that you know are ready to go, have the zoning done, have the entitlement done. See, a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of getting a project started is behind you. Um, you know, you can get it. At a, at, a, at a good price today and obviously, um, you know, move forward because the underlying fundamentals and the need for the development is still there. Yeah. And so as long as you have the capital to finish it, you should do well over the long term. Yeah, we, we've seen a, a number of projects like that even here in Mississauga. There was one uh, uh, over by Mississauga Road in Dundas. There was a major one that was going over there on top of Piatta Restaurant, if anybody's familiar with that. But there's another one that I'm thinking of in Streetsville. That was supposed to be developed in uh, around 2017, 2018, and there was a fire that actually saw the building collapse. And they have yet to uh, to restart development on that project. And uh, we're talking six, seven years later, and uh, or five, six years later, excuse me. And uh, only now did they just put up a brand new sales office to uh, to try and resell the units that were going in in that location, and a, a new developer stepped in. So obviously, like you said, Corrado, great opportunity for somebody to step in as long as you have the funds to be able to do so and take advantage of a, a, a project and a, a plot of land that's already been zoned and approved for development. At the same time, you in those situations, you have individual investors who put down deposits to acquire uh, residential uh, real estate, and uh, they're being deferred in terms of their ability to uh, uh, take ownership of the property and maybe um, either occupy it or sell it. That's creating a lot of cash flow problems for for the individual investors who are getting involved in those projects. So buyer beware for for people trying to speculate in in uh, pre-construction condos in the in the anywhere. Yes, fair point. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Corrado, uh, before I, I took us on this little tangent, I was going to. Uh, Circle back to uh, to your discussion on uh, the pandemic and the impact on uh, on office real estate. And so, uh, I, I wanted to get your perspective. You know, what are you hearing from the tenants who are major employers? Are are they planning to go back to a full Monday to Friday office environment, or are we likely to see a, a continuation of the hybrid work environment where employees are working from the office, maybe 
two to four times a week and then the remainder is work from home? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. And obviously it's dependent on the industry, the business line, the labor force, the city that you're you're in. And, you know, there's been this constant struggle between employees and employers from what we've been seeing. I think from the employee standpoint, the ability to have a more balanced life, not have to commute, not deal with the cost of parking and, and gasoline to get to where you're going, uh, and the ability to, you know, pick up your kids and, and, and have lunch with your spouse, you know, is creating a, you know, desirable uh, effect. And um, obviously technology allows us to still be productive. On the other side, employers... Um, are seeing now over the last couple of years, the first couple of years, obviously, we were in scramble mode. Over the last couple of years, they're seeing productivity come off a little bit. They're seeing collaboration come off a little bit. And so the employers want employees to come back. They see the value. It's very difficult to build a culture um, when everybody's not in the office. So for those businesses that need to build a culture, need collaboration, need teamwork, uh, need to put a lot of different heads together to accomplish certain things, uh, there is that motivation to get people back to work. I think why it's taken so long, to be frank, has been the labor shortage, right? In many industries, it's been very difficult to get labor. And so labor has had um, negotiating power. And so employers have been very leery of forcing people back because of the turnover. And so I think because of that, you use the term hybrid. I do think that's where we end up. Uh, I think some industries will go back five times a week. Some will never go back. But I think for the most part, we're going to end up in a hybrid situation of three to four days a week in the office. Um, we're seeing tenants start to do that already. They started with three days. What they're seeing in terms of three days is it's becoming very difficult to schedule meetings because everybody's taking a different two days off. And so <laughs> you're starting to see some standardization of which days employees can work from anywhere. You know, no surprise, it's typically Friday and or Monday, um, depending on whether it's one or two days. Uh, and so, you know, that that seems to be where we're ending up is okay. sort of that three to four day a week. But here's what's interesting about that, because people look at the work from home and say, you know, even if we go back, it's only hybrid. And that means there's going to be a lot less demand for office. Again, numbers can, you know, I think the famous line statistics are, can, can lie and they're one of the best liars out there. If you look at the average utilization of office, which is what people are looking at today, you're kind of in that 60 to 70 percent range. So the office, if you look at five days a week, how many people in the office versus pre-COVID, it's about 60 to 70% of the time. So people are extrapolating, well, that means demand is going to be 60 to 7% less. That's not the case. Because if you're three days a week and you're three days a week, you want people in the office for collaboration, for teamwork, for team building and culture, then you want them in at the same time, Right. If you have half your team in on one day and the other half another day, how are you collaborating? Mm -hmm. So what you what what tenants are looking at is you have to manage to peak capacity, not average capacity. 
you can't have everybody come in on Wednesday and not have enough desks to go around because you have enough desks for the average capacity. Right. So when you start thinking about the equation as peak capacity, not average capacity, uh, you start to see that the demand drop off is not necessarily that great. We estimate that there's likely going to be about a 10 to 15 percent decline in actual needs for desks. So bodies in chairs right. are going to go down about 10 to 15 percent in terms of demand. But what's happening is that offices are adding significant amount of amenities. Right. They're adding better and nicer and bigger kitchens and right. meeting rooms and collaboration space and fun zones, right? No, the, the Googleization of the office environment. The Google, that's a great term, the Googleization. The tech companies got this a long time ago. And the point yeah. was that the office needs to be somewhere the employee wants to go, not has right. to go. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so that that is offsetting the less bums and chairs is being offset with amenities that also require space. So I'm not convinced that there's going to be a significant drop off in office. Having said that, you're probably not going to see a ton of growth. Um, so, it, you know, you're probably going to be in a low growth environment for some years, but I don't think it's the big sharp drop off that's being priced in, for example, both in the private market as well as the public market. I think that, that could be something that surprises people over the next five years. That, that, that's a very insightful commentary, the difference between the average occupancy and the peak occupancy and uh, the need for the real estate to still be there uh, to accommodate peak occupancy and uh, the restructuring of the in, of the average internal office. That's a, that's a great insight, Corrado. Thank you. Yeah. I think even uh, something that I experienced in, uh, in post-pandemic and uh, going back into the office for a brief time before I, I changed careers was, you know, everybody had, had thought these, this hoteling system was going to be the uh, the way of the future, the way forward, you know, when nobody has a fixed desk space and anybody can go anywhere in the building. But if your goal is to build collaboration and team uh, team camaraderie or culture, you need to be in a, the same space. So it's not just enough to have desks that are available for people in the building. There needs to be enough desks, like you said, for everybody, but also for the teams to remain in the same area so that they can actually work together. Because if everybody's in the building, but on different floors, then it's no different than anybody being at home and then collaborating over the Internet. So exactly. you need to have those team building spaces as well. And socialization is a, is a nurturing aspect of, of humanity. What's interesting is I was uh, watching something on the on the blue zones and, and longevity around the world and. One of the characteristic traits of these blue zones where people live longer is the fact that there is a lot of socialization that goes on and it is very important for the psychology of, of people to interact with other human beings and feel like they're needed and wanted and, and belong to a community. And I think the office environment does that for everyday people who go to work is you have your, your, your family at home and then you have your work family. And in as much as, uh, yes, you can all work from a computer, or at least in, in many occupations, you can work from a computer, uh, the actual interaction of being there in person, perhaps going out for a lunch together, it, it makes a big difference in, in, as you said, collaboration, the ability to be more productive and to create a, a, a sense of uh, uh, purpose, belonging, and uh, a satisfaction psychologically. 
Well, look at the during the pandemic, one of the most streamed television shows was uh, The Office. And I don't <laughs> think that's a, that's an accident. I think people were nostalgic over the idea of actually being together in the same location and spending time together. And it's it's not the work that that the people miss. It's the the interactions, the events that happen in between the work that are really what make the work environment so enjoyable for a lot of people. And so I, I definitely think that uh, you, what you said has a lot of value, Corrado, in terms of changing the space, making it more of a, uh, a collaboration and social space, but uh, making it something that entices the workers to go back into the office. For sure. Before, I certainly hope my employees don't compare me to Michael Scott, though. Uh... <laughs> but John, you these, Corrado. Yeah, there you go. But I, I'd like to say one more thing because you hit on something, John. I think it's important, right? Talking about the culture and and the office being part of your sort of socialization and entertainment. You know, as global investors, we see not only trends here in Canada or the U.S., but everywhere in the world. And what you're seeing in Europe and Asia with respect to the office space is dramatically different than what we're seeing in North America. In Europe, the office utilization rates are back to 80, 90 percent. Really? COVID, and they're rising. And it's because of exactly what you just said, John. In Europe, culturally, socially, um, your work friends are a very big part of your overall social network. And so going to the office, seeing your friends, having lunch, going for drinks afterwards, right? If anybody doesn't believe me, go to a pub in London around 5 p.m. Right. And uh, forget trying to get in. The streets will be packed outside of people having drinks. Right. And so it's a big part of their overall social network to, to go for drinks and then go for dinner and then go back home and start again. So you're seeing that significantly in Europe, one. And then if you look at Asia, it's the same thing. Um, not necessarily for social reasons, but it's for either FaceTime with the boss. You look at something like Japan. Japan prides itself on culture and respect and organizational structure. And so if you don't have FaceTime with the boss, you have no hope of getting a promotion. Right. Being in the office and spending time and showing them having that relationship with your, right. with your friends and colleagues and bosses is very important. We also have to remember that in North America, you look at the average size of our homes. Right dramatically larger than the office yes. of a home yes. in Asia. So if you're in Tokyo or Hong Kong, you're not living in a 2,000 or 3,000 square foot home. You're living in a 400 square foot condo. Right. So having a home office and a pet and a right. kid and a yeah. wife, a spouse that wants to vacuum and watch Netflix, this is not a friendly environment to work in. It's very different. No you know, having a, a, an office or a bigger home here in North America. So to your point, um, the rest of the world is showing us the importance of the office. And I think it's taken a little longer here, but I think we'll, I, I think we'll continue to move towards that. Sorry for the interruption. We know that you are listening to Prescribing Prosperity presented by MedWealth Financial. And we're so happy that you're here. If you have any questions, please go to medwealth.ca or the show notes to find out how to reach us. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Yeah. Great. Uh, I, Dad, before you uh, you just, uh, take us in a different direction, I just wanted to uh, ask one more question, if that's okay. Sure. Corrado, you, uh, we talked a little bit at the beginning when uh, we were discussing Cadillac Fairview about the, the change in, or the perceived change that was occurring in uh, the late 90s and early 2000s towards e-commerce. 
Obviously, e-commerce has gained a, a larger foothold in the last five to seven years and 10 years, if you will. Um, and it has a lot more traction than it did even back then. What are you seeing now, you know, post-pandemic in terms of the impacts on the, the retail space and, uh, and traditional brick and mortar retail? Are, are we, are we going to see a proliferation of, you know, the, the shopping mall, if you will? Or do you think that we're going to see an evolution given that anchor tenants in the, in the traditional sense have really gone the way of the dinosaur and started to uh, disappear? And uh, we've moved away from that uh, traditional, you know, uh, Hudson Bay and uh, Sears and uh, in the United States, Macy's and Nordstrom and all, all of those large tenants. How do you see the uh, the brick and mortar retail evolving? Um, outside of office, probably the next place I see the most amount of change coming down the pike. Look, e-commerce is here to stay. It's not going away. The convenience factor is huge. But I think you have to look at, and you can think about it in your own spending patterns, right? You, The more commoditized a product, the less you have to really touch, feel, try out the more likely it is to be bought online and only online, right? You know, and, and even something like a shirt, once you know what shirt you like from your Brooks brother and you know you're a 17 and you like this fit, uh, you can continue to reorder and reorder. Um, but there are certain things like a, a, you know, a nice suit, uh, a, a sofa couch, um, you know, some of the higher end furniture, uh, where you're going to want to try it out. You're going to want to sit and experience it and, and uh, you know, be able to, to try different things. I think we've seen a change in bricks and mortar shopping centers over the last 50 years dramatically happen. It constantly evolves. So again, I think we have to separate what's going to happen to the tenants to what's going to happen to the bricks and mortar, right? Think about it. If you go back to the 80s and the, the 70s and 80s, everyone had bowling alleys, everyone had cinemas and malls. And you got into the late, you know, the 90s and the early 2000s. And if you had a bowling alley in and in a, in a cinema, it meant that uh, you had a crappy mall and you couldn't fill the space and you just gave this space away to fill it. Now, all of a sudden, Back to that again, right? Restaurants, bars, bowling alleys. These, these are great amenities to have in a shopping mall. Why? Because the shopping mall has to become partly entertainment, partly experiential. You have to give me a reason to get up and in my car and drive there and take time out of my home life to, to have to go to a mall. So I think what you're going to see is the tenant mix is going to change. Tenants will die. Tenants are going to go away. Many of the bankers will not be there in five to 10 years. And then the question is, what do they get replaced with, right? And you're starting to see it. You look at the Apple store, you look at the Tesla store, right? You're, 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 you're seeing it change and evolve in terms of what it needs to be. The nice thing is, I think the question of, if, if you're a new retailer coming to market today, five or 10 years ago, you would have asked the question, do I want to be an online retailer or do I want to be a bricks and mortar retailer? And you really had the way which way you want to go and then execute. Today, that's not the question. I think it is a given. If you want to be a successful retailer, you have to have omni-channel. Both matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's really about how you optimize the space. So I think for the shopping malls, 
my view is I think we have too many. And I think you're going to see some of them go away. Some of them get halved. And those get converted into things like apartments or industrial. And you're going to see the stronger ones and that are left over thrive and survive. So the key there is you just got to buy the right ones. You got to buy the survivors and you got to, you got to make sure that you've got a tenant mix that motivates people to come to your area. So I would be cautionary on shopping malls. I think there'll be less around in the future, uh, but there's still going to be a place for them in bricks and mortar. That makes a lot of sense. We we would be uh, remiss if uh, we did not ask a question on the housing shortage, uh, given that we have an expert in real estate in, in our midst today. Obviously, we see it everywhere. Uh, the uh, younger generation is having a lot of difficulty getting into the housing market. And we wanted to get your insights into that imbalance, Corrado. And how do you see this evolving? Yeah, look, I think it's arguably one of the biggest challenges we have on the planet today outside of environmental uh, and, and, and some of the other challenges. It's, it would be up there in terms of affordable housing for, for everyone. Uh, and it's a continuing problem. It continues to, in my view, get worse as you know, we have places like Canada have more immigration without the offsetting ability to build to keep up with that demand. Um, so I think I think it is a problem. I think it's a tough one to solve. And I think from our perspective, Hazelview and as a real estate investor, our view is how do we try to be part of the solution? And right. so you need more development and you need more options, right? So I think single family homes has obviously been the desire of most of us as we've grown up. We get married and we want to buy a house. I think what's happening is that, you know, it's becoming, to your point, very difficult for many of us to be able to buy a house. So you've seen the condo market come into play. You've seen apartments. So we haven't seen apartments for rent housing uh, built for nearly 30 years. Right. Predominantly a function of rent control, which didn't motivate people to really want to invest in the development right. of apartment buildings. That started to change. We're starting to see uh, rental development come on the market. And Hazelby is a big part of that. We have a, a, a very large pipeline of new apartments that we're trying to bring. So the answer is supply and the answer is alternatives. Um, so not only are you seeing apartments and condos in addition to single family homes, but you're seeing things spread out like manufactured housing, single family rentals. Uh, so there's some of these other areas as well that are helping to solve that housing shortage. From an investor perspective, purely from an investor perspective, what it means is rent for housing is going to continue to go up because demand is not going away. It is the one thing that, you know, whether it's online or any other potential issue that you see on the horizon doesn't change the need for a roof over your head and the ability to, to, to live somewhere. So I think Demand will continue to rise, especially in countries like Canada that, that have a lot of immigration. And if we can't keep up with that demand with new supply, you're going to see prices continue. It, it, it seems, Corrado, as though there's a disconnect between uh, federal policies and uh, local municipal policies uh, on the supply side with rent controls. 
for example, as you mentioned, and also the speed of uh, rezoning and development. Uh, it seems to be moving at a glacial pace. Um, you have the, the, the rent controls, but then you have the federal decision makers who are uh, opening up the floodgates uh, and creating this imbalance. And uh, so do you see any movement on the local end? Uh, is there a discussion going on right now about uh, in, infilling in urban centers and uh, accelerating rezoning and possibly at the provincial level discussing uh, the either reduction or elimination of rent controls? We do. We do. I think the good news is that many of the municipalities uh, cities and and um, provincial authorities are seeing that uh, rent control is not the answer. You know, it's 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 an easy way to appease, uh, and I think we'd all like the the thought of not having rents go higher. But the solution longer term is to have more choice and to have more supply. And so I think what we're seeing is uh, a um, a des a, a greater desire on the on behalf of the authorities to give more density to land. So if you think about that 10 story apartment building, turning that into a 30 or 40 story apartment building, you think about that two story shopping plaza, converting that into multifamily and getting 10 or 20 stories there. So you're seeing density go up, you're seeing areas of the city that are allowing um, developers to go higher and the desire of that is to get more homes. If you look at the development, for the most part, it's new homes, whether it's condo or rental. Um, you're not seeing predominantly office or retail or hotels. It's 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 homes. And so right. I do think you're starting to see cities work more with developers, um, appreciate that you know you need to enhance uh, the overall amount that you're building per per piece of land. Right. If you're going to build something, build as high as you can, because land is very scarce and very valuable. So that's the good news. And we're seeing a tremendous amount. One of one of the best opportunities we're seeing uh, as a private real estate investor is to buy underutilized land and to work with the city to improve the zoning and the entitlement to be able to build a lot more. Air rights are extremely valuable in, in cities. Uh, and so I think you'll see cities the complete opposite of what we all thought in COVID. Everybody was going right. to move out of the cities and we we're right. going to live in the suburbs. Uh, and I think you're, what you're seeing now is I think you will see a densification of cities because people have figured out you, as cities, it's, it's extremely inefficient to have 50 small cities. Right. It's a lot more efficient to have 10 big cities. You yeah. think of the sewage and infrastructure and electricity grids um, water treatment facilities to have people spread out is very, very costly from, yeah. from a government perspective. So I Without, think we continue to do that. Thank you for that explanation. It's really, uh, it, it, it crystallizes what's been going on in the last five years, I think, in, in our, our region, the greater Toronto area, but I think it's being seen everywhere. You see it in China, where they're trying to take a, a massive rural population and uh, urbanize it, and the challenges they're having over there in terms of doing that. Uh, but it's cer certainly a worldwide phenomenon and trend. 
we want to transition to a discussion on on uh, uh, Hazelview's uh, four quadrant strategy, which is available to retail investors. And, uh, and uh, but before we get to that, much of our audience may be medical professionals, and there's a a quite well known REIT called Medical Properties Trust that's been popular amongst medical professionals as an investment. And over the course of the last few months, we've seen an, an implosion in that REIT because it's lost a lot of its tenants. Perhaps you can speak to, uh, even if not specifically to that REIT, in general terms, what's going on in the medical REITs? Yeah. So again, with medical REITs, not all are created equal. You know, medical properties trust specifically, if you talk about some of the pain that they're feeling, it's in the hospital space. So when it comes to healthcare, You've got hospital REITs uh, or REITs that manage hospitals. You've got medical office buildings and clinics. You've got you know retirement homes, senior living. So it's it's a it's a pretty broad base. When it comes to medical property trusts, they're having a lot of difficulties with respect to the hospitals, and that's a function of as a REIT, they don't operate the hospitals. They have operators that come in and operate the hospitals, and they charge them rent. Right. So it's really the operators that really handle the day-to-day administration of, of healthcare. And so some of these tenants have seen significant financial pressure from, you know, a predominantly a rise in costs. Material costs have been going up. Labor costs have been going up. And, and fin- financing costs have been going up. So, you know, in the case of, of, of medical off, medical properties trust, you know, their largest tenant, Steward Healthcare, uh, which is about 20% of their revenue, is in distress. And uh, yeah. medical properties had to give them support via, via loan, which obviously has strained its own balance sheet, right? right. It had pretty significant leverage to begin with, and it's had to in- enhance that even further to avoid their major tenant going bankrupt. I believe their third largest operator as well. It's also getting into having some issues, prospect uh, metal, medical, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Challenges around increase in cost, but also challenges around revenues. You know, you, I, I, this, this might shock you and it might be sad to hear, but about 20% of the uh, operator's uh, revenue that come in and procedures that get done uh, go without getting paid. Right. So right. they got 20% of the services that they're offering, they don't get remuneration for. That's only gotten worse with inflation going up, challenges around costs, medical bills are going unpaid. So you've got revenues that are going down and the costs that are going up. So it's creating a pretty challenging uh, environment. It, and in this particular instance, it speaks to the uh, psychology of uh, the investment and uh, retail investors. I've had interactions with many medical professionals over the course of time. And that from time to time, I come across someone who says, oh, yeah, my, I'm well looked after. I have this uh, real estate investments that's, gi- that's giving me an 11 percent annual uh, yield. Really, <laughs> who pays eleven percent these days? So if you if a, if an in investment instrument is paying an eleven percent yield, chances are there's some future distress about to occur to bring that yield down. And so yeah. that's that's a challenge we have as uh, uh, managers of wealth to to give a, a proper perspective and to provide alternatives. And um, so tell us about your four quadrant strategy at Hazelview and how that protects investors uh, from uh, being subject to that kind of uh, singular focus. 
Yeah, so four, the four quadrant fund is is all about diversification. To your point, John, real estate is not all created equal. Even within healthcare, we talked about how many different types of healthcare they are. Uh, different companies and tenants can have different financial health. And once you get outside of healthcare, you know we've talked that so far on this call multifamily, residential, uh, office, retail, industrial, hotels. Outside of that, there's other areas, you know, exciting areas like data center REITs, cell tower REITs, you know, self-storage, single family rental, the list goes on. And there's different ways to access that real estate and those different sectors. There are four main structures when it comes to investing in real estate. Ultimately, it's all about that hybrid of cash flow that I talked about at the beginning. It's a hybrid of equities and fixed income. Why? Because it's contractual rent. So you have that, that fixed income, but it doesn't, uh, it, it's not, it, it, it grows over time. Rents go up at the pace of inflation. Um, and as you adjust those contracts, they go higher. You can access that cash flow stream by, buy, by owning buildings directly and managing them and enhancing their value. You can access that by lending to other owners and operators of real estate via real estate debt, or you can invest in publicly traded companies that own high quality real estate around the world, or you can invest in publicly traded mortgages. And so the four quadrant fund is exactly um, how it sounds. It invests in all four quadrants of real estate. It gives you exposure to private real estate, public real estate, debt, uh, on both the public and 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 uh, and private side, the nice thing about private real estate is that it it has great returns over the long term, and it's it's not volatile. It's not marked to market every single day. However, it can be illiquid, especially right. in times like today. So having that public piece allows you to maintain liquidity to deal with situations like we're seeing today and get you through that 12 or 18 month period um, to the other side till you can access liquidity. Um, debt, make sure that you have income. So when we say we pay a 5% distribution in the four quadrant fund, we've got all that source of cash coming from underlying investments. Right. When MPW says we give you an 11%, you know that might sound exciting, but if I were to tell you they're borrowing every quarter to pay that dividend, that might seem a little less appealing. Uh, well, that's uh, that's very scary to know that they're borrowing to make their their distribution payments. I notice on your um, reports here on performance, you, your your Hazelview stra uh, four quadrant strategy has an impressive uh, longer term track record, running uh, in the double digits, and um, uh, and but that includes the uh, distribution assumed to be to be uh, reinvested. Uh, I'm I'm assuming not in addition to the distribution. Correct. That's the that includes the distribution, and obviously investors have a choice to take that distribution or reinvest it into the uh, portfolio. So, anything else you want to elaborate on the, your four quadrant strategy that I, it would be appealing to our to uh, retail investors? Yeah. So, like I mentioned, it, it gives you the ability to access all of these different types of real estate. It gives the ability to allocate capital to where you see the best the best risk-adjusted returns or mispricing at any point in the cycle. Um, and it allows you to just not have to worry about your real estate exposure. And not have to worry that one tenant leaves. Not have to worry about the 3 a.m. phone call to fix a toilet. It gives you that peace of mind. 
Uh, and the other thing is the, the geographic diversity. There's a lot of people in Canada who are immigrants who who uh, are accustomed to in their uh, previous uh, homeland uh, as the only means of investing was to buy uh, housing and rent it out to somebody. Here with the Hazelview Four Quadrant strategy, you are getting instant global diversification. So you can elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, so we've got investments in Canada. We've got investments in the U.S., um, we've also got investments across Europe, especially on the public side. Uh, we've got investments in France. We've got investments in Germany. We've got investments in London. We've got investments in Japan, um, in addition to Australia and, uh, and, and Hong Kong. So you have the ability to find areas where you're getting a very attractive value. And what we have found is capital is global. And so when things are cheaper in one market versus the other, capital will find that value. Right. So the key is if you can get ahead of that and and move where the capital is going, then you should be able to create outsized returns over the long term. Alex? Uh, thank you for that, Crado. Uh, one of the things that we uh, we wanted to get into a little bit more detail about was uh, the public real estate uh, market, specifically uh, real estate investment trusts. And so, uh, as uh, many investors might know, uh, a real estate investment trust uh, goes by the name REIT. That is the more common uh, vernacular that is used. And it offers investors a much more liquid avenue for accessing the real estate market. How do you see the difference in pricing at the moment? And is this an opportune time to expand outside of direct ownership properties and buy publicly traded companies that own real estate assets? Yeah, I think... I think I gave away at the beginning of this call that I've basically been looking at this space for about 30 years. And what I would say to you is, to me, it feels like the most opportune time to buy public real estate in 30 years. Right. That's the kind of opportunity I see today. It's one of the biggest disconnects between public and private real estate that we've ever seen. You Publics obviously have discounted a big part of the negative sentiment towards real estate in 2022, whether it be rising interest rates, fear of commercial real estate, office, work from home, e-commerce, fear on retail. A, a lot of the topics that we've talked about, given you have the ability to vote with your feet, people have exited the REIT space. And that has created this vacuum of demand relative supply of sale of REIT shares. And so this big discount persists. Now, your first question should be, well, doesn't that insinuate or imply that that's because private real estate values are coming down? Well, not really. Some will come down, some may not. It depends on the sector. Industrial multifamily have tremendous amount of growth. And we talked about earlier, growth can offset higher cost of debt, higher cost of capital. Like office, perhaps not. But if you look at you know, office REITs, they're trading at 40 cents on the dollar. So pick your number. Do you think values will go down 10%, 20%, 30%? They're not going down 60. We talked about, you may see some demand for office space go down, but the need for the collaboration is still coming back. So if you think they're only going to go down 20% and you can buy something down 60%, there's a double or a triple potential there. Uh, and obviously, you have to do your homework on the balance sheet and their longevity and their ability to get through it. So, you know, it's 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 not easy to pick the right ones. But today, if what we have done 
over the last year or year and a half have we've seen the dislocation it was we have underwritten the underlying properties of many of the REITs that we have chosen to invest in. And we are forecasting not where values are today, but where we think they're going to be where things settle out. Where is the five-year going to end up? Where are risk premiums going to be? What does that mean for cost of debt? What does that mean for cost of capital? What does that mean for the value of the underlying buildings? What's going to happen to happen to rent levels? What's going to happen to occupancy as we go through all these changes and trends that we've talked about on this call? And when we do that, what we're trying to say is forget where property values are today. Where do we think we end up in the future for each of these different sectors and companies that we invest in? And then we compare that price to today's trading price, not today's value to today's trading price. And that implies that we're sitting at around 20 to 25% discount to that future value. All right. When we've seen this in the past, we've talked about the late 90s, we've talked about the financial crisis, we've talked about COVID. Those are the three other extremes where we've seen 20% plus discounts to intrinsic value of the underlying properties in the future. It's typically taken about two years to get back to that intrinsic value. So if you say two years to uh, make up for that 20, 25%, and remember, 20% discount is 20 on 80, right? Right. That implies 25 to 30% upside, depending on how you're looking at it, add yep. your dividend yield. And there's some pretty attractive outsized returns. On top of that, you look at, you know, the U.S. REIT market, for example, the loan to value is 32% today. That also shocks people because they think about, oh, real estate, it's overvalued. We right. remember the late 80s. We remember the financial crisis. They're all going to get into trouble. They have too much debt. You know, they, they, the cost of debt's going up. They, a third of their capital comes from mortgages. Right. right. So they are so much better shaped than they were in the financial crisis. We actually learned something. <laughs> You know, one of the best times, the best time that you could have entered the REIT space in the U.S. was uh, spring of 2009. Right. Yeah. Clearly. I think but that was the, the best the, best time to enter the, the public stock market as well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh, I, I, I'm pretty excited about the, uh, the REIT space today. So to your point, the four quadrant fund, John, you know, has... Uh, a big component of that, and obviously, you know, some good upside there. We also have the Hazelview Global Real Estate Fund, which is only public REITs. Okay, well, that's that's oh. that's a that's a fabulous overview, uh, Carada. Thank you very much, Alex. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say the same thing. You know, this is a uh, a fascinating topic, and I'm sure we could spend the rest of the day uh, discussing the uh, the various details and uh, nuances of the real estate and uh, investment business. But uh, Carada, we thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, join us today. And uh, we hope that our listeners are going to find this as engaging and as insightful as, uh, as we did. Thank you very much, Corrado. Absolutely. Happy to do it. And thanks for having me on. Thank all of y'all, as a matter of fact. But there's a lot of information in this to process. So for people who are listening to this who are thinking, yeah, <laughs> maybe I need to reach out to John or Alex or, or, or Corrado to get, get more information. Uh, 
John, why don't you share with us how, how interested investors can reach out to you? Well, there's a couple of ways. Uh, they can send an email to info at medwealth.ca. That's info at med-wealth.ca. Give the office a call, 905-568-2000. Alex, the other the social media channels? Yeah, so uh, Twitter, it's uh, at med-wealth. And uh, on LinkedIn, you can find us as well at MedWealth Financial services on uh, on linkedin so we're available there on yeah. uh, both platforms and twitter is now x yes that's correct <laughs> did you want to give the uh, the toll-free number dad one triple eight five six eight eleven seventy that's great carada that was fascinating i found your insights into the, co the commercial real estate market and and where we are on on behalf of of, of reits in general to be really informative it opened my mind and opened my eyes to a couple of things thank you very much for joining jo john and alex today appreciate it and listeners thank you for listening to this if you're a new listener and you haven't yet subscribed hit the subscribe button down below because that way you don't have to remember to come back and listen or find or do anything it will be automatically delivered to your listening device it'll be there you can just listen up whenever you're ready to listen to it we also ask that you uh, perhaps take the time to rate this podcast and share it with others, because in doing so, you'll help others find it. On behalf of John and Alex Tussos, I'm Bill Tucker. Thanks again for listening. And remember, don't wait to live your best day. Live it today. Thank you for listening to Prescribing Prosperity. Visit our website at med-wealth.ca, that's med-wealth.ca, for more information or to connect with us for a consultation. Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and their guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of IPC Securities Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified and licensed financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment or retirement planning. MedWealth Financial Services can provide a private consultation to help you determine the suitability of any guidance discussed on the show.